please be seated. Well, the children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. It's on page 1192 in the Pew Bible. I think after VBS is over, I'm going to petition the elders to keep this platform here. I, I like this, this kind of elevated thing that's going on. I like the old Puritan pulpits. Hebrews chapter 11, page 1192. This morning we come to, to a new character in the litany of Old Testament heroes. We come to Moses. And let me just read the text. It's Hebrews 11, verses 23 to 27. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Well, I finally uh, saw this movie, uh, Valkyrie. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Really interesting movie. It's, set, uh, it, it's a historical thriller, so it sort of depicts real-life events. It's set in World War II Nazi Germany, and it tells about an actual assassination plot that was carried out against Hitler unsuccessfully. Uh, the plot was executed on July 20th, 1944, and uh, the idea was to take a bomb to bring into Hitler's briefing room, and hopefully the bomb would go off and kill Hitler. And the bomb did go off. It didn't kill him because of some interesting events that took place. And the, the movie depicts, you know, sort of the historical, you know, sort of minor twists of fate that determine the outcome of that whole thing. But the main character in the story is played by Tom Cruise, and his name is Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg. And von Stauffenberg uh, had, you know, sort of grown up in uh, Hitler's army, had seen it for what it was, and finally came to a place of saying, you know, I can't support this. Either I have to continue serving, you know, Nazi Germany, or I have to take a stand for the real interests of Germany, you know, for my true motherland. And so to protect Germany, I have to fight against its leadership. And so one of the major threads running through this movie is, is this whole theme of allegiance. Where is your allegiance? You know, which side are you on? And von Stauffenberg had seen enough, experienced enough to see that, that he had to make a decision. He couldn't just kind of plug his ears and close his eyes and, and just pretend he didn't know what was happening. So he makes this decisive choice to join the resistance that, that wants to get rid of this uh, tyrannical dictator, this evil ruler of Germany. <clears throat> and there's this one poignant moment in the movie that kind of, I think, crystallizes the theme of allegiance and choosing sides and actually, this, I guess this scene and this line were, was taken out of something that von Stauffenberg actually said. But, but you see the scene, Tom Cruise is sitting in his office, and this new recruit comes in to stand before him. He's going to be Cruise's personal assistant. And apparently, you know, he's sort of aware that there's something going on. And the first words out of Tom Cruise's mouth, he looks at the assistant, and he says, I am committing 
high treason with all my might and means. Are you with me? And it was just a great line that sort of crystallized this whole, this whole theme. Look, you've got to decide which side you're on. You have to decide where you stand in this thing. Well, today we come in the book of Hebrews to the story of Moses. And for those of you who maybe this is your first Sunday here, we're studying through Hebrews uh, sort of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're dealing with the life of faith and what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to be a person who follows uh, uh, God by faith. And uh, we've been looking at Abraham, for instance, and we saw that he began a faith journey when God called him, that he trusted in the promises of God, and that uh, by God's grace he continued to trust even though everything seemed hopeless because he really believed in who God was and what his promises were. So that's part of what it means to be a person of faith. But today with Moses we see a different dimension of being a person of faith in Christ. It also means that we have to pick our allegiance. That to be a person of faith in Christ means I have to, in a sense, kind of commit a high treason against this world system. I have to take a stand against the beliefs, the values, and the behaviors of the world and say, I'm not with that, I'm now with Christ. See, I think sometimes when we talk about faith, we think of it as sort of a a personal coping mechanism. You know, like Advil that you take out of the medicine cabinets when you've got a headache, you go get your faith pills, and you're okay, I made it through that tough time. And, and pe- people talk about it that way. They're like, oh, it's really great you have faith. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you that you have your faith. I hope that your faith is helpful to you. You know, as if it's some kind of medication that we take. But, but faith isn't just something we call upon in times of crisis. Faith in Christ calls upon us to take a stand for Christ. It calls us forth. And so we have to decide, you know, which side are we on? And as we look at the story of Moses, we see the story of a man who had to pick a side. Was he going to continue to stand with the Egyptians or was he going to stand with the people of God? So let's do this. Let's uh, look at Moses' story. Let's go back to the original text. And so put a bookmark here in Hebrews 11. We'll come back to Hebrews 11. And go to Exodus chapter... Exodus chapter 2, second book of the Bible, it's on page 55. And let's read the actual story of Moses. Actually, we'll go back to chapter 1, because we have to have a little background leading up to Moses. Alright, so we ended with Abraham last week. Now you've got to jump forward about 500 years to get to Moses. Okay, so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Can you name them? Just kidding. Um, He has 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Israel is born, but they're down in Egypt. They've gone down to Egypt. So look at Exodus chapter 1, actually, verse 1. We'll sort of fill in that back history. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So God's promise to Abraham is coming true. God said, you will become a great nation. And so a great nation is coming forth. The people are multiplying. But 
things change. Verse 8, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. As so often happens, one generation forgets the history of former generations. You know, great things happen in a country and then things change and the people of the nation no longer remember the things that took place before. You know, we see that happening in our country. People will stand up and say, hey, this country was founded on Christian principles. Yeah, it was, but I sometimes wonder if anyone cares, you know? It's like it's, we've so shifted from where we were. And that's what's happened here. It's a dramatic shift from back in the days of Joseph when the Israelites were the saviors of Egypt because Joseph saved Egypt by God's power. And now things have so dramatically shifted that now the Israelites have become the enemies. They're now seen as a threat. The Hebrews are seen as a threat. So, verse 11, what do the Egyptians do? They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So now the stage is being set. We have the Egyptians in an oppressive position over the Israelites. They're trying to exterminate them and crush them through slavery. That's not working. They're still multiplying. God is still blessing His promise to Abraham. So the king kicks it up a notch. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. They just keep spreading and spreading. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born must be thrown into the Nile and let every girl live. So the fault line between the Israelites and the Egyptians has now become almost genocidal. It's so deep, it is so wide, that that you now have this interesting scenario where where the two are really uh, diverse and opposed to each other. And it's into this context that Moses is born. Okay, so that's the backdrop. Here's Moses, chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now this is the incident that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. So put a finger here in Exodus, we're coming right back. But let's just read Hebrews 11, 23 again. 
Hebrews 11.23, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So even before Moses is born, you sort of have this foreshadowing of conflict between the command of the king and the the, uh, obedience of the Israelites. So even in Moses' birth, there's this act of public disobedience by the parents. So even there, there's this rejection. There's, there's an act of high treason. Moses, the fact that Moses is alive in this basket is treason. <laughs> He's born into a treasonous kind of context. He's already in a situation where his parents are defying what the king of Egypt has to say. And so that just kind of sets the tone for the story. And then something completely unexpected happens. Exodus chapter 2, verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked, that is Moses' sister, the baby's sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. What an interesting setting. (laughs) What an interesting setup. This incredible uh, divide between the Egyptians and the Israelites this oppressive people and the people of God. And here's Moses. He has one foot in one world and one foot in the other. By his heritage, by his birth, by his uh, background, he is a Hebrew. He's one of the people of God. And yet, he has suddenly been, I don't know how to call it, socially teleported. (laughs) You know, beam me up, Scotty. He just is yanked up to the highest levels of Egyptian society. He is the adopted grandson of of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, you can't get a greater disparity of social position than this. From being just a slave who actually should be dead to being the grandson of the Pharaoh. Now with unlimited educational opportunities, unspeakable privileges, un, you know, unmatched wealth, over and above anyone else in Egypt. Even the other rulers and leaders. He sort of leapfrogged all the way over them and he's at the very pinnacle of Egyptian life. And so he has one foot in one world and one foot in the other. But the problem is these worlds are moving apart and you can't straddle them forever. And, and so this, this kind of conflict is set in motion. What will happen? Will, will he choose to be an Egyptian or will he choose to stand with the Hebrews? Where do you stand? Which side are you on? And here is his decision. Look at verses 11 and 12. One day... After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, don't let the brevity of those two verses fool you. This is the decisive moment for Moses. 
You, you know, you could just read that and be like, oh yeah, Moses got a temper and he just decided to kill some guy and, you know, kind of went crazy for a minute. It's sort of a blip in the story. It's not a blip in the story. This is the hinge of the story. And sometimes it's hard to see that because Old Testament narrative can be sort of Spartan at times in its description of situations. But here it is. You know, Moses sees the situation. He sees his people oppressed. And he sees this Egyptian beating on this Hebrew. And suddenly, in that that moment, it's a microcosm of his whole life. The whole situation of his existence is sort of being played out before his eyes in this interaction between the Egyptian taskmaster beating the Hebrew slave. And suddenly he realizes, you know, this is Pharaoh against the people of God. And if I am going to continue being pampered and uh, pleasured and honored by being an Egyptian, that means I'm going to do so at the expense of the people of God. That my prerogatives and riches and blessings are taking place on the backs of the Israelites. And so he had to make a decision. Which side is he going to be on? Sort of this momentous issue comes to a head. And so he decides in a moment, I will stand with the people of God. And he does this act. He crosses the Rubicon, as it were, and kills the Egyptian. And so that's what Hebrews, going back to Hebrews 11, if you could turn back there, That's what Hebrews 11 is talking about. It's describing this moment. It wasn't just a random act of violence where Moses flipped out for a second. Okay, He's taking a stand with God's people. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 24. It says, By faith Moses, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Well, when did that happen? Well, when he killed an Egyptian. He crossed the line. He's no turning back. It says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Would he be mistreated or would he be pleasured in Pharaoh's palace? Which one would it be? Verse 26, He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. I love that line that being disgraced for Jesus' sake is worth more than all the treasures of Egypt. What a great concept. And he says, this is it. I'm going to stand with God's people. I'm going to be disgraced with Christ rather than enjoy all the perks and pleasures, the pleasures and treasures, all the, the amenities of being a prince of Egypt. And so he decided to commit an act of high treason. You know, I'm committed to high treason with all my might and means. Are you with me? Which side are you on? Now, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? In verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Isn't that kind of a funny phrase? Considering that Jesus, you know, wouldn't be born for another 1,500 years. So, so the author of Hebrews is saying that Moses was standing with Jesus even though Jesus wasn't born yet. So, so what does that mean? How can that be? And, and I think what it reveals is, is that the writer of Hebrews, this theme, we've seen it throughout Hebrews, is this idea of continuity between the people of God. That the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, are united to Christ, looking forward to Christ. And the people of God in the New Testament, the, the new Israel, which is Jews and Gentiles in Christ, the church, are, are continue on with the people of God. So that there's one people of God unified in Christ. So, for instance, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. It says, these all, that is the Old Testament heroes, were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Verse 40, 
God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So they with us were one people. And that's really what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. I mean, you know, what's the, let's just kind of remind ourselves, what's the whole book of Hebrews about? It's a call to persevere and not fall back. It's a call to keep going forward with Christ and not get sucked back into the old world, to keep standing for God. I mean, apparently the people to whom Hebrews was written were Christians who were in danger of going back on their faith and, and going back to Egypt, as it were. And so the book of Hebrews is calling them to go forward, to not fall back, to not get weak, to not despair. You know, look, for instance, back at chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 32 to 34. We studied this text already, but the author of Hebrews says to the Christians there, Remember those early days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. He says, remember way back then, guys, before, when you were first Christians, you suffered, you stood with God's people, you were mistreated with the people of God, you were rather disgraced with Christ than hold on to your treasures. And so he's saying, look, you've got to go back to Moses and, and stand with Moses and stand with God's people and be disgraced for Christ. And I think the same message applies to us. You know, we're in that same family with Moses and the people of Hebrews and Christians today. Isn't it interesting to think that even though you have Moses, 1,500 years later you have the people of Hebrews, 2,000 years later you have the people at South Shore Baptist Church. So there's like almost four millennia separating us from Moses. And yet, the basic spiritual dynamic is the same. You know? Yeah, it's a different culture, a different world all the way around the world. And yet you read the story and you're like, that's exactly what we go through. We have to decide, will we stand with the beliefs, the values, the practices, and the behaviors of our culture? Or will we be identified with Jesus and accept some of the negative consequences that often are attendant with that? Which one will it be? Where do we stand? Which side are we on? Will we act in high treason against the world? Or not. You know, I was thinking, um, you know, sort of asking myself this question. I'll ask it to you too. Have you ever had a Moses moment where it became very clear that you had to stand on one side or the other? Have you ever sort of come to a sort of a Moses uh, crisis moment in your life? Maybe some of you have similar stories to Moses. Perhaps you've been raised in some sort of church tradition some sort of religious background. Maybe your parents dragged you to Sunday school. Maybe you came to a vacation Bible school when you were a kid or went to uh, CCD or, or whatever. You had some kind of religious training and background. And, and you had sort of a general belief in God and you were open to it. But somewhere along the way, maybe in your teen years, maybe in your 20s when you went off to college, uh, Pharaoh's daughter came and scooped you out of the river and took you to the court of Pharaoh to say, hey, why don't you try this? And, and in that context, you, you drifted away. Uh, you, you know, and maybe for you it was the party scene, or maybe it was uh, just getting wrapped up in, in possessions and the things of this world, 
and, and your love and, and that, that sort of heritage that you had, like Moses, was sort of left behind and you, you indulged and experienced the treasures of this world and the pleasures of this world. But then at some point you realize, I've got to make a choice. I, I can't have a foot in both worlds. You know, I can't have two Facebook accounts, one that my parents see and one that no one else knows I have. You know? I, I, can't, I can't be you know, a party person Friday, Saturday and come to church on Sunday. I have to make a decision which world I'm going to live in. And, and so these Moses moments come, these moments of crisis and clarity when we realize that I must commit high treason one way or the other. Either I say to the world, your beliefs, your values, and your behaviors are, are wrong and I will not live that way. I'm with Christ. And so we've committed a kind of high treason against the world. Or we will continue to reject Christ, which is high treason against the King of Kings. And so which one will it be? You know, where do we stand in these kind of Moses moments? Do we really believe that it is of greater value to be disgraced for Jesus than to have all the treasures of Egypt? That's the question. Is it worth more to be disgraced with Jesus, to, have, to, to self-identify as a Christian and have maybe people break up with you or have people feel like they don't want to talk to you because they're weirded out that you're a Christian or whatever it is? Are we willing to be excluded and ostracized and misunderstood because of our stand for Christ? Not that we become obnoxious or offensive or, or pushy with our faith, but are we willing to be identified with the people of God and possibly mistreated? And so we have to make a stand at some point. Faith calls us one way or the other. Are we in or are we out? Will we be disgraced for Christ? That whole idea of being disgraced for Jesus, it reminds me of another passage in Hebrews. We'll get to this one too, but it's one of the best passages in Hebrews. I love it. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through His own blood. Let us then go to Him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace He bore. Jesus went outside the camp to suffer for our sins. He died and shed His blood. He had to go outside of the city of Jerusalem. He didn't get crucified inside the city. He went outside the place of disgrace, outside of the pleasures of the world, outside of the temple, to be disgraced outside of the city. And He did it to shed His blood for our sins. And so if we're going to stand for Christ, you know, I was kind of thinking about this, to become a Christian means, in a sense, that, that you have to kind of commit a sort of high treason against yourself. You have to say, you can't go on saying, you know, I'm fine, I'm decent, I'm normal, I'm accepted, I'm doing well, I'm prosperous... You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm fine. I don't really need Christ. You have to come to a point of saying, I am a sinner. I have, I have been against God's people. I've been against God. And we have to sort of commit treason against ourselves and say, I'm not good. I need the Savior. And so crossing that line is a kind of self-death. You know, you, as Christians, we're not called to, to kill people like Moses did or even like von Stauffenberg did because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. 
But we are called to die to ourselves. You know, the Egyptian who must be killed is me. I'm the Egyptian that needs to be killed and buried in the sand. And I recognize that. And so as you become a Christian, you say, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And Christ says, I am that Savior. I was killed. I died the death that you deserved. I I took the death and the punishment that you should have for being a rebel against God. And so even being a Christian is an act of treason against one's own self as we identify with Christ. So which side are you on? Are you squarely with Christ? Are you willing to be disgraced for Him? Or are you trying to do that? I'm in both worlds. I, you know, I fit in both places. Maybe you are a Christian and you have been with Christ. But, but there's temptations to go back. There's temptations, you know, that it's, it's hard being a Christian. It takes a long time. It's draining. It's humiliating. And sometimes, even if you've been a Christian for a while, you're like, oh, I'm just tired. You know, I just need that. I just need that old thing. I just want to pull that back into my life. Can't I just put a little toe back into that world? And so there's that constant temptation to go back to Egypt, even after you've crossed over to stand with Christ. So I just want to encourage you today that standing with Jesus, being disgraced with Him, suffering with the people of God is of greater value than all the treasures of this world. Jesus is the pearl of great price. That's worth everything. And as Jesus calls us, He says that if anyone would come after Me, He must what? Deny Himself. Take up His cross. Which is a sign that I'm going to die. And follow Me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we love You and our hearts are full of You. And, and yet, Lord, we confess to You that the world is pulling us back. That old temptations, old pleasures, and old treasures are calling us back to Egypt and back to Pharaoh's court. And so, God, I pray that You would strengthen Your people today to, to be drawn toward Jesus. Would You give them a vision of the invisible Christ who is at Your right hand in heaven? Lord, it's so hard to to strive for Christ whom we have not seen with our physical eyes when we live in a world that completely saturates our senses. And so, Lord, give us a spiritual vision of Jesus, of His glory, of His worth. Help us, Lord, to see Him in heaven and to have hope of eternal life and of heaven and the, the new heavens and the new earth that are coming. And so, Lord, just strengthen Your people today. Strengthen those who are wrestling with temptation. Strengthen those, Lord, perhaps who have slipped back into the court of Pharaoh. May they once again declare their, their allegiance to You and to stand with You. God, I pray for anyone here who, who is wrestling with the call of Christ upon their life. And they've lived their whole life in Pharaoh's court and, and they wonder, why in the world would I leave this to stand with Jesus and suffer with Him? And I pray, Lord, for anyone who is at that, that crossroads that You would just show them that there's something more valuable than what this world has to offer. That You would show them the glory of Christ that You would help them to see that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And that, God, You would impress all of these truths on their heart in the way that only the Holy Spirit can do. And so, Lord, be with, be with us. Help us to see these truths with the eyes of our heart and to believe them. We love You, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Jesus, that You were willing to be disgraced for us. That You did not turn back. 
that you did not compromise or waver. Lord, help us to follow you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Well, we come to the communion table now. We come to celebrate what Christ has done for us. This table is a celebration of the the death of Christ on the cross for us. This bread that we break is a symbol of His body. This blood that we, this uh, cup that we drink, is a symbol of His blood. And the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. He's with His people. And so if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you have crossed that line to say, yes, I am a sinner and I've embraced Christ as my Savior, then you are welcome to eat at this communion table with us. Uh, If that's not where you're at, then I would just encourage you to participate by observing and just uh, enjoy the moment uh, of silence and, and to think about the things that you've heard today. Maybe God's been speaking to your heart. This is a time to commune with God and to speak with Him. So I ask the elders to join me here at the communion table. As we remember the night Jesus went to the cross, He was having the Passover meal with His disciples and He took some unleavened bread, some matzah bread, and He broke it. And He said, this is My body, which is broken for you. And uh, Kent, would you give thanks for the broken body of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to come before the table. We thank You for what You did on the cross for us. And we just pray that You would examine our hearts, that we would confess our sins before You, that we would confess where we've, in the moments where we've chosen the treasures of this world rather than chosen You. We pray that we would search our hearts and that You would point those moments out to us and that we confess them. And we just thank You for what you did on the cross for us. And thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. As the elders distribute the bread, I'd invite you to take this time to pray silently and worship the Lord, to thank Him, to do business with Him. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to our hearts, and let's just respond to Him in prayer.
Christ's body was broken for us so that we might be made whole. Let's eat together. Then at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine and he gave it a new meaning as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. I can ask the elders to join me again. And Dan Bass, would you give thanks for Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross? Father God, we thank you for Jesus, who though he was equal with you from eternity in the glories of heaven, chose to leave that place and come become one of us and being found as a a man uh, became obedient even unto death, death on the cross. Thank you for the blood that he shed for our sins.
the service. We'd love to pray with you. Mark and Nancy Lundquist are over here in the corner. They'd love to pray with you over in the, that alcove. We have four elders here who would love to pray with you confidentially. After the service, they'll be here in the front. They're the guys with the ties. So, just look for them. And uh, Tim Els, would you come and close the service in prayer? Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for the opportunity to gather, to be here among the people of God, to sing your praises, to hear your word proclaimed, to uh, share in this great honor of uh, your supper. We're grateful for these many blessings, and we ask you to go with us to live on your side. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you.